Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. And I think that's one of the kind of the secrets of Wall Street, which is that the more you know about money, the more you actually understand it's a fiction. I argue in the book that the masters of Wall Street are really the greatest poets around today. They are the ones who have mastered metaphor and fiction, not the writers. Yes, it's really all a myth, the fiction of money. That's what I will be talking about in my interview coming up with Frederick Kaufman. He's a professor of English and journalism at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism in New York. You just heard Fred there from my interview talking about the money poets of Wall Street. Fred is also a journalist and he has a new book out, The Money Plot, A History of Currency's Power to Enchant, Control and Manipulate. It's a deep dive into the past 65,000 years to demystify the concept of money and we'll talk about what he uncovered. Fred's book is timely in the age of COVID-19 and an unprecedented flood of capital and money into our economies by central bankers worldwide. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, Life on Planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. Frederick Kaufman talked to me about the history of money, conspiracy theories, why central bankers today may be saving us from total and immediate catastrophe as economies are held back from the brink. I question him on the potential for evil despots taking control of the global financial tiller. But Fred makes it clear, this money business is a fiction, a myth. He'll explain about the magic of Bitcoin and the man of magic who made Bitcoin become a reality. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. And I spend a bit of time talking about him. He is absolutely, absolutely obsessed with science fiction and with ancient Roman and Greek myth. He understands that money is a myth that we all believe. And that is the ancient, archaic form of money. And that's what he replicated with a machine on computers. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. My guest is the professor and journalist Frederick Kaufman. He's author of The Money Plot, A History of Currency's Power to Enchant, Control, and manipulate and it's doing very well on the charts welcome to the show fred i have to begin by asking you why did you call it the money plot 
Well, thank you, John. And it's a, a pleasure to be here. And, uh, and I really appreciate the interest. Um, it's a strange kind of set of words, money and plot. We don't really think about exchanging money and telling stories in the same breath. But that's what this book really is all about. It's about these two things that we think are separate, telling stories and exchanging money and showing how in many ways, shapes and forms, they're the same thing. And so the book tracks and traces the simultaneous development of each. Okay, so it's a good time to be talking about money and mentioning plots because, of course, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Hopefully next year will be brighter and more cheerful with this vaccine and numerous vaccines that are coming out. But we've had a flood of central bank intervention worldwide, and that brings up the purpose uh, perhaps the manipulation, but the control of the money supply. How does all of that fit in and what's your take? What have you learned from your research and what do you think about what's going on now? Well, I think one of the things that's interesting is that with the pandemic, uh, on the darkest side of how people have been considering it in terms of it, it's some sort of a conspiracy, it's, it itself is a plot, has come again this parallel idea that the plutocrats, that the bankers are somehow in on this, and that the, uh, the the great emissions of credit and cash from the Federal Reserve and from the Treasury Department are themselves some sort of conceivably evil, uh, notorious uh, idea. Uh, again, what we're seeing, is, strangely enough, is this is is the conspiracy plot of money. And what's happening socially, in this case, pandemic, are going hand in hand. Of course, that's the, the point of the book is that, A, this has always been the case and that stories and money uh, go together. But second of all, that we have nothing to fear, for instance, about the, these, these great emissions of trillions of dollars. That, in fact, there's something essential to money uh, going way back even to pre-market economies that insists that the amount of money uh, is actually infinite, that, that the point of money is not that there is a finite amount, but there, there is an infinite amount and that more can always be made. And I, and I make this point in the book very early on when I'm talking about uh, the, the kinds of pre-market economy and money used in the late Stone Age made out of ostrich egg beads. And in fact, what we're finding is about 40,000 years ago in the hinterlands of Kenya, not only were they creating these little beads, but they were actually manufacturing thousands upon thousands of them. The whole point of money is that we make as much as we need. And right now in the pandemic and in the economic meltdown and in the chaos in the markets, we need money and we need credit to keep things calm and stable and keep people in business. In other words, from the very beginning, one of the one of the essential qualities of money is a safety net. And so even now when we're in a very late stage money, late stage capitalism, we still need money to act in that way as a as a vast safety net. Most people would agree with your explanation we've got to help uh, businesses individuals, economies that would be otherwise struggling, or indeed we could be headed to the next Great Depression. 
unless we had this capital infusion. But we'll get to the different aspects of that because it raises some questions, some disturbing and some which many people will have different opinions about. What's your take on the various conspiracy theories we've had historically associated with the global money system from alleged Masonic influence to controlling dynasties in Europe. We've read them. Some people believe them. That, that, that's such an interesting question. I think that what we see is in times of unrest, in times of fear, right? We search for explanation. To a great extent, my book deals with transformation of money during periods of apocalyptic thought during periods of apocalyptic thought. In other words, right now, we have this a very strong sense, even as you just point out, money systems might collapse, political and social systems are being strained, what will happen next? And I, we hear a lot of these questions, uh, and we have seen these traditionally. And so I spend a, a fair bit of time in the book talking about another very apocalyptic moment in human history, which is the medieval period. The bubonic plague appears about 500 uh, around the year 541, around Suez. It runs rampant through Europe. About 13% of all the people on the planet die. That would be roughly equivalent to about 1 billion people as of, you know, for the pandemic. And it's at this moment that we, that the, that Christianity in Western Europe, which had not really been an apocalyptic religion previously, becomes apocalyptic, becomes very focused on the book of Revelations, on the end of days. And oddly enough, this is one of the great periods of transformation of commercial culture and money. And it's a revolutionary period in money. And the church itself has very mixed feelings, as we know, about the growth of money and, of course, credit economies and mortgages and lines of credit. But these two stories, the, the apocalyptic story is very, very closely entwined in the extraordinary growth of commercial culture from about the year 500 to 1500. My point is that, is that in, in times of extreme stress, when we need to have a different idea about money and money systems, this often leads to great innovation. We can see it during the American Civil War when Abraham Lincoln needed to emit into the North's economy $250 million worth of greenback dollars, dollars that had been, were backed by nothing, not gold or not silver. The dollar up until then had been bimetallic, but always there was some sort of underlying value. People, people in Congress were convinced this would be the end of the dollar. Such was not the case. We saw this happen again, most really most recently in terms of a, a total transformation of the dollar in 1971. When Richard Nixon, again, on uh, Friday the 13th of August, 1971, realized the United States economy did not have enough gold to back all of its all of its dollars that were being kept in the vaults of sovereign banks from other nations and simply floated it, simply said, the dollar, uh, it's not related to gold anymore. And again, over that weekend in Camp David in 1971, there was tremendous pushback, tremendous pushback from his treasury, not from his treasury secretary, secretary John Connolly, who was all for it. But from the head of the Federal Reserve Bank, uh, Arthur Burns, and other economic advisors who were convinced that if he floated the dollar, it would all go to hell. In fact, it led to the greatest expansion of Wall Street in the 1980s and the 1990s that we've ever seen. Many examples of, of this type. I don't think there's anything to be overly concerned about uh, when we need to emit 
let's say, another $908 billion, as is presently on the table right now in Congress. So, Fred, you're not worried about currencies becoming debased. Isn't the classic definition of money or has it changed to the classic definition, store of value, medium of exchange, and a unit of account. A unit of account. Well, that's the classical definition of money. And, and, that, and really, that's only been around uh, for the past about 200, 200 years. Okay. However, debasement of currency has been around for, for thousands of years. You know, the, 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 in, in China and in ancient Rome, currency was, was constantly being debased. And so this is a problem with metallic currency just as much as it is a problem with paper money or fiat currency. The answer to this question uh, was, was, came around in the end of the 19th century with the, the this quote-unquote state theory of money, the, the chartalist theory, the idea that money is in fact not related to anything material, but it is, it is related to something social and political. And the states themselves define what their money is and then the transactions among different sovereign nations create that uh, that meaning along with what's happening within the sovereign nation. But the point I'm trying to make in the book is not really about state theory of money. It's really about something much deeper in the human psyche, which is asking for symbolic representations of value and what that what that means, what that means. And the idea goes really much deeper than Adam Smith and his idea of market-based economy. And a lot of the book is spent talking about what money is before there were markets and how money does not, in fact, come from barter, that that is one of the great myths of money, which is widely disproven uh, by ethnographers and anthropologists who really traced the entire globe looking for some sort of pre-monetary barter economy and found it nowhere. That, in fact, before there are markets, there are there's all kinds of symbolic uh, tokens of value, be they shells or skulls or or feathers or gongs, and these act mu- in in much the same way as modern insurance pro- uh, modern insurance products, uh, as gifts, as passageways uh, for for the dead to get you know to get into the uh, that that sort of thing. So in other words, these tokens are very old and symbolic and embedded in the human psyche. And eventually, as the stories about money become more sophisticated, the symbols too become more sophisticated. When we talk about a medium of exchange, you you take stories about prisoners who have very little actual cash, but they will use cigarettes as a medium of exchange, and two cigarettes will buy you maybe a cup of coffee. Well, look, what we, what we find is that these barter economies are only post-market economies, not pre-market economies. And right, we find them in prison, you know, right? So you get two cigarettes, we'll buy you some candy, something like that, or a weapon or drugs or something like this. And we also see it in wartime economies, you know, in wartime economies of, of extreme scarcity, all of a sudden, everybody realizes, yes, indeed, the paper money isn't worth anything. What we need is bread. And so all of a sudden, we then go to barter, right? But none of this occurs in, uh, in the quote-unquote primitive society. I just want to go back to the idea of money debasement and what's going on today with the trillions of money being flooded and injected into the economy through bailouts, propping up large corporations 
and checks being cut to individuals. And we, we want to take a compassionate view of this. We don't want to come across as cold-hearted and ruthless. But I'm trying to understand that if you keep flooding the globe with this money, physical commodities, housing, the food we eat, the heat uh, for our homes, the cars we drive, a different price tag at some point must surely be assigned unless that money is actually not circulating and we're not aware of. No, I think there are two parts of this question. One, one, And one has to do with this increasing suspicion about the nature of money, which is really, you know, the COVID has been an accelerant. So a lot of, a lot of trends in the culture that were happening slowly have sped up. You know, typical example is, you know, uh, distance, uh, you know, vir- virtual learning and virtual business, right? It just sped this thing up. Same with money, really, from the 1990s and on into the really the first decade of the century, there's been a growing sense of suspicion about money itself. You know, the flash crash. What 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 did that what did that mean? Uh, the 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 debacles of 2008 and 2011 and 2011, the global phishing and scam economy, the growing sense that there is money manipulation happening, you know, currency manipulation in Norway, in Singapore, in China, the um, there's the growth of counterfeit goods, which is now way more than three trillion dollars, the insane sense of global sovereign debt you know, trillions of dollars in debt. And so people are all of a sudden like, well, what is money anyway? What is this stuff? And at the same time, we have, of course, the growth of crypto and cryptocurrencies. And people are beginning to think, well, maybe money is more malleable than we thought it was. Maybe money is what we want it to be or what it possibly can be other than strictly dollars. And so that's one part of the question. And that is very true, that there is a growing suspicion. because, And, and also it has to do with the fact that in the first decade of the century, we see the, this astounding growth of the hedge fund and so much money being made with absolutely no, as we can see, relationship to the underlying commodities, as you point out. what The, the profits of hedge funds and quant funds uh, are really not related to the overall economic good of the country. These things are, are, are separate. And so we start wondering, how is that money being made? At the same time, we have this other factor, which is exactly as you rightfully point out uh, in terms of compassion, which is food, shelter, this sort of thing. And people are beginning to think, well, maybe there is a right to food. Maybe there is a global right to shelter, just as we already take for granted there's a global right to, let's say, education. And so we see, for instance, now, uh, as we just saw over the past year, the candidacy of Andrew Yang. Uh, for the you know trying to win the democratic nomination for presidency, and a big part of his candidacy is global basic income, not global. I'm sorry, national basic income in America. And really, 40 years ago, at the beginning of the go-go 80s, when we see the fall of the Berlin Wall, when we see Reagan and Margaret Margaret Thatcher, and we see this real strong sense of of capitalism, you know, ascendant. Andrew Yang would have been completely laughed out of any kind of political discussion. This, I, it is, this is pure communism. But this year, this past year, everybody's scratching their heads and thinking, well, maybe there's something to be said for universal basic income. Because everybody's beginning to realize that, in fact, there are two things going on here, that money is increasingly unrelated from basic commodity necessities. And so we have to take care of those. We have to take care of those. And maybe we're, the best way to take care of those is not with market 
money. Picking up on that, the national basic income, the universal basic income, do you think what we've gone through during this pandemic and consumers and Americans and citizens of the globe seeing how this has worked will be more receptive to that and there will be political pressure to introduce it? That's part one of the question. Part two is, do we risk some dangers? Is there inherent dangers in that? In other words, if we have some despot at the tiller or in government control, do we risk an almighty catastrophe socially and politically? Okay, so a lot of people, of course, say, oh, Kaufman, you know, you sound like some sort of socialist, some sort of Bernie Sanders supporter. <laughs> you know, you know that, that is really not, that's not the case here. I'm, I'm a good believer in, in, in capitalism, you know, regulated capitalism, obviously, uh, like any system needs to be needs to be regulated. Okay, so uh, on on the you know when the idea of public education was first floated, this also was perceived by many to be some sort of uh, wild social adventurism. The same thing with the idea of social security, public health systems, and the Great Society. This is the same thing that we see again and again and again when Congress debates over slight increases in SNAP or food stamp benefits, right? And in fact, what we're seeing is that the greater people, the greater sense people have of their ability to remain in the middle class, in other words, they have social security, they have some sort of a basic medical care that they can go to, they have some sort of basic education. The more that we see buy-in to the social structure itself. It's not the opposite. We see more people trying to get ahead. And not only that, but we see more women enter the market, more women are educated. We're talking globally now. And that means that they are not having 12 kids in poverty. The kind of the key to global middle class development is education of women. And in order for that to be done, right, there has to be public education. And the the women themselves have to be emancipated in many ways from being really slaves to their men and money and money systems and money security systems play a very strong role in that. And when we're talking about the risk, obviously there's risks in any system. There's, you know, the despotism of capitalism is just as risky as the despotism of social security, right? Or, or I think that we have in the United States now and really globally a very complicated sovereign system of currencies with a lot of checks and balances, right? And and I am not too concerned at this point, right, that those things are going to collapse. In fact, what they need at this point is support. And the more they are unsupported and the more those small businesses are allowed to fail and the more the middle class suffers, that is the danger zone. I don't think it's so much from the despotism but from the, you see, the it's, it's kind of like the, the point that Amartya Sen made. He won the Nobel Prize in economics. And he crunched all the numbers of all the famines. And the point he made is that people don't starve because there's not enough food. People starve because they can't afford the price of food. And when a quart of milk is all of a sudden 25 bucks, that's when I'm in the street. That's when we're all in the street. That's the danger zone, right? And so, and we have low interest rates. People continue to demand and need basics. And so that is what money is for. And that is what money is essentially for, is a symbolic way of making sure that the society holds together. And if you look in terms of the 
long-term history of money, you'll see that this kind of symbolic representation of value begins when humans start having very complicated social systems and societies. In fact, that's what it's for. It's to keep that social system and social fabric together. It's not to tear it apart. And what tears it apart is income inequality, extreme plutocracy. That Those are the dangers. Really, what we want is, a, to, to, my, to my mind, I think the, the real goal is a strong middle-class society with a, with, a, with a lot of bourgeois wants being met. You know, you can, you can sit around, you can, t- you can insult the bourgeoisie all day long. I'm a fan. Most on the left and right, or most reasonable people would say the U.S. social security system is a terrific success, one of the best federal programs ever launched. It's the people's money and provides a cushion, if you will, in their senior years. I, I, I'm trying to grapple with the idea of all this money again, Fred. If we just briefly touch on it, why we haven't seen all that much inflation. Is that because the Fed is doing weird things? Well, I don't think the Fed is doing weird things. I think that the Fed is doing responsible things. I think the Fed is trying to keep interest rates very, very low. I, th- I, th- I think the Fed is particularly is particularly concerned. I mean, particularly concerned about hyperinflation, and that's like their their goal. Their their single goal is to have that not happen. Traditionally, the goal of the Fed, you know, is to keep inflation at around two percent, right? And it's much less right now. It is much less. They need, you know, the goal is high employment and low inflation. And they seem to be trying at this point to get the employment part back going, right? Because that's really our issue. Our issue right now is not so much money, but employment. We need to get more people to work. And hopefully the pandemic we're going to see a, a quick rebound from that. The concern, of course, is the K-shape, you know, the K-shaped recovery with, with the middle class being and people with a lot of savings, let's say, in the market going through the roof, people at the bottom going through the floor. That's the danger. And I think the Fed is on it. And I think, you know, Janet Yellen was on it. Even people like Steven Mnuchin, you know, Trump's Treasury Secretary, he's a guy from Goldman Sachs, politically or not, if I agree with him or not. He knows what the, what, the, what the Treasury Department needs to do. And again, let me just point out that why was money shells? Because there were a lot of them. And you know, for the vast period of prehistory, before the dollar was the re- world reserve currency, before coins were the world reserve currency, shells were the re- world reserve currency, because there were an infinite number of them, because there was a sense that there could always be more shells. And actually, the same thing with metal. A lot of people talk about, oh, we have to be responsible. We need to get back to metal because metal means that money is real. If you look back in the history of metal currency and the first precious metal currency occurs around the year 500 BC, the whole point of metal currency is that there's tons and tons and tons of it. There's tons, there's almost infinite supplies of gold and silver and copper and bronze within the bowels of the earth. So once again, the idea is we can always mint more. We always can mint more. And so money, as I, as I kind of was saying earlier, is always related to issues of infinite supply. Yet, because of our insistence on this other money plot, this, this neoliberal market economy, people always ask me about scarcity. Things will, you know, prices will go up when things are extremely scarce, or we have to keep money a little bit more scarce, otherwise everybody will have too much and it will become worth nothing. Those are specious arguments. 
To protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water, mud, and insurance paperwork. Yeah, I can do this. You go, Karen! By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. My guest is Frederick Kaufman. He's the author of The Money Plot, A History of Currency's Power to Enchant, Control, and manipulate. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. The Weimar Republic printed an incredible amount of currency to stave off economic ruin, and we saw where that led, and it had a massive inflationary spiral. That's why I asked that earlier question. No, that, and, that's, and of course, that's the cautionary tale. You know, everybody always goes back to, to Weimar and then points out what happened afterwards with the, with the rise of fascism uh, in Europe. But of course, Really, the the troubles of Germany, and and you know this is a this is this this is one of the most studied areas of economic theory and economic policy, and there are some, some there are some other great books written about it. But one of the one of the underlying problems was actually the insistence on gold as being an arbiter of global economy, and and I spend a lot of time in the book talking about what is really the you know we we see. Weimar is an outcome of World War One, but a lot of people forget that World War One is the outcome of the Franco-Prussian conflict in the 1870s, and that really the the fact that 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 uh, Germany uh, extracted all these concessions from France added to this this unbelievable sense of uh, and and enduring sense of anger and unfairness and the essence the essence of that demands after germany beat france in the franco-prussian war was germany demanded billions of dollars worth of reparations it was a money issue and france delivered all of it and delivered all of it early in gold in pure gold at which point germany switched its underlying the underlying value of the mark it had been silver and now not just the mark but at that point it was the the thaler t h a l e r the silver thaler they made it gold and all of europe followed the united states followed and for the next 40 years you get this tremendous volatility in global money supply and sovereign currency exchange rates and you can see the world slowly teetering towards this inability to balance itself economically. And that is often seen as the problem with a problem intrinsic to gold and the fact that they could not let go of the idea that there had to be some sort of an underlying material value. And of course, we don't see that now. We don't see that now because people have let go of that idea. They've let go of that idea. And it's really it's really the remnants, uh, you know, it's what John Maynard Keynes said is gold is a barbarous relic. It's really um, the remnants of, of previous years and previous ideas when, when people insisted that money had to be a material as opposed to a symbolic value. Well, that ties into your idea in the book about the fiction of money. The money plot, a history of currency's power to enchant, control and manipulate. You spent 10 years writing this book and you produced this brilliant tome. 
Thank you, John. Yes, it, it, it was it was 10 years in the making. I did not think it would take this long. I originally thought I would just be writing about Nixon's float of the dollar. I thought, that's what I thought the book was going to be, about a weekend at Camp David in the summer of 1971. And then my editor uh, asked me to do uh, go delve farther and farther into the past. And I spent about, you know, two years just doing medieval and, um, uh, yeah, and then 19th century. And then I got into classical and it, it just, uh, it was uncanny. What I found was that relationship of, again, how the, when I say how story developed, for instance, an example would be the birth of tragedy in uh, around 500 BC in Greece happened simultaneously with the birth of precious metal coinage. And what is more tragic in some way, shape, or form, just on the surface, than a precious metal coin. It has the imprint of a great of a great person, right? And that person then his you know the renown spreads around the world. But then twenty or thirty years later, that person is gone. You melt it down. You get somebody else's face on it. Uh, you know, on that even on that trivial level, you see that story advances at the same time as the coinage advances, and that's because there's something deeply embedded in human psyches that money is a kind of language right? They, they say that, you know, money talks. And in the history of money, and particularly in primitive currency, a lot of money does in fact talk. That The idea is that, is, that, is that money can dance, money can sing, money has a voice. Money is then a form of what we English professors using, you know, call personification. In other words, what we do is we imbue a bead or a dollar bill or a cryptocurrency with our own desires for the world. We project it, and that's what money is. Money is really a projection of our own desire, our desire for safety, our desire for status, and our desire to actually wend our way through the future in a way which is not chaotic and tragic and awful, right? We are trying to have a predictable future and really empower ourselves by telling the story of our own lives as opposed to being at the whims of nature. And money has been the greatest tool we've ever found in order to actually deploy that story of our lives and give ourselves and our families a sense of security. But we have to understand what money is. Money is not just that unit of account and media of exchange. We embed it with our desires for security. Look at your 401k. Look at social security. Look at social safety net. Look at savings. And it's of, of course, it's also about gambling. You know, the history of money and the history of gambling are more related than we care to, sometimes we care to admit. Money is all about speculation, betting seeing which way the future is going to go. And we can see this again with primitive currency, which is often used as like a poker chip or like dice, the idea of predicting the future with money. And of course, this is what you're asking me to do again. You're asking me, predict the future if, if the Fed emits all this money. What will happen? That is the essential quality of money, and we can't forget it. The essential quality of money is trying to gain some sort of control over the narrative of our future. I had a Victor Schreft on my show recently. He's the author of The Great Rupture, and he's a global strategist at a major bank in Hong Kong. He said if central banks worldwide reverse course, in effect, we would have a collapse in assets, in our 401ks. Yeah. Uh, jobs, it would be just mayhem. I, I would, I would agree. I would agree with him. Yeah, I mean, this is absolutely. I, I don't think. I think that there's really no other course at this point. And you know, we saw this. Look, we we saw it again in the medieval period. We saw it. Uh, 
when we have all of a sudden these great banks, the Medici Bank is formed and the Alberti and the Albizi and all these great Italian and Florentine banks are created. And they're created because not only do they have great stores of gold, but they have great, they, they start emitting credit. And, ex, and, and one gold florin is equal to 400 florins of account or imaginary florins or florins in credit. And that credit economy transformed money in, and transformed banking into modern banking. And yes, it is true that in that earlier form, there were many booms and busts, and many of those banks ultimately went under around, you know, a couple of hundred years later. And by 1500, Europe again needed to restart and rethink its money. <laughs> and uh, coincidentally, at that point, that was around the time we, we discovered the quote unquote new world and started ravaging it. For all of the uh, the commodities and the mining and the lumber and the plants and animals that were there, right to 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 save the European economies, which were then on the brink. But mercantilist theory, you know, the, the theory of uh, how how much bullion each country can keep in a hoard, that eventually fell too, uh, going forward. But there's no turning back. I think what's interesting, however, in terms of turning back is this idea of artisanal currency and barter currency in the sense that I, what I'm seeing is that people, a lot of people, it's a, it's a trend, but it's a growing trend and it's been trending for a while. They're less, many people are less and less interested in money. I think our generation, John, you know, the generation of the go-go 80s and the 90s, we really, we really locked into this fantasy of money. And Gordon Gecko, and like, you know, like it or not, for it or against it, there was this idea that, you know, the man with the most toys wins. Vast accumulation. But what I see in our children and our grandchildren is, is, it, is a different perspective. They actually are seeing it a little bit differently. And they're maybe moving out of some cities. They're, they're choosing a different kind of life. And they're choosing to have more of a social view of money as opposed to a selfish view of money. So I am hopeful. I really am hopeful. That's an optimistic note. We're going to take a, a few quick uh, gems from your book, The Money Plot, A History of Currency's Power to Enchant, Control and Manipulate. It's doing very well on the sales and the charts. Well, it's it's number one new release in uh, economic uh, th theory of economics on Amazon. It was uh it was also number one new release on income inequality. So yeah, I mean I think that I think people are thirsty for different views of money and understanding money, and even if it's just nerding out on money. And I also think that money managers, you know, this is not such a crazy idea. I think a lot of money managers understand the story that they have to tell their clients about money. And I think that's one of the reasons why so many really good and successful money managers, as it turns out, are philosophy majors, are English majors, or history majors, are, hu are humanities majors from, from you know, Williams or Amherst or wherever it is, because they really have a firm understanding of metaphor, of character, of plot, of story, of the way it works. And money is, as they understand, is really the greatest metaphor we've ever come up with. I mean, it is the fiction we all believe. We all know that that dollar bill is a symbol. We, we see the filigree, we see the pyramid, we see the eyeball, we see the face, right? And all these things are signs and symbols. And we also know that there's nothing behind it but the full faith and credit of the United States. That's a story, full faith and credit of the United States. But we also believe in it. We agree that we're all going to believe in it. 
And I think that's and I think that's one of the kind of the secrets of Wall Street, which is that the more you know about money, the more you actually understand it's a fiction. You and you and I argue in the book that the masters of Wall Street are really the greatest poets around today. That they are the ones who have mastered uh, metaphor and fiction, not the uh, not the writers. I can already hear the trumpets blowing. <laughs> a few quick takeaways. Uh, Pope Innocent IV, uh, 1195 to 1254, is widely credited with originating the modern day concept of corporations or people. You mentioned that in your book. What, what, what did he mean? Yeah, I found Pope Innocent IV, and there's a very famous Lateran Council. The, the Lateran is the papal residence, uh, and in the medieval period, all the bishops from all over and the cardinals would convene at this uh, at the residence, and these were the famous Lateran councils. And at one of them in 1250, uh, Pope Innocent IV uh, made they, they would make these edicts. And at, at this one, they one of the edicts was all cardinals wear red hats, which of course we we know is very important. And the other was any harm that comes to any property of the church, notice the word property, Mm. is equivalent to harming the body of Christ. So in other words, the body of Jesus Christ is the exact same as the corporation, the multinational corporation of the Catholic Church at that point. And this was the first specific articulation of corporate personhood. Which, of course, now we know corporations have all sorts of rights, uh, I- including freedom of speech. And this was a fascinating moment because what he had done is he had taken this idea, this Christian idea of the body of Christ and communion in the body of Christ. And then he had said, OK, we're going to take that idea of this individual and we're going to make it work for a large multinational corporation and actually invented corporate personhood, which, of course, as we know, is one of the keys to our to equities, to investing in corporations, to market economies, to Wall Street. And it, and it emerges from a very Christian idea. And this is I, I do a lot of tracing of how Christianity and the stories of Christianity work so well with money stories, in, including you know, the American gospel of wealth of the 19th century. And of course, one of my favorite books, uh, a best-selling book of the 1920s by a guy called Bruce Barton, who was an advertising executive who uh, came up with the with the character Betty Crocker. That's what a genius he was, uh, Bruce Barton. And he wrote a book called The Man Nobody Knows. It was a bestseller. And of course, The Man Nobody Knows was Jesus, but it was the capitalist Jesus, the Jesus who had taken these 12 men from nowhere and created the greatest team of all time and, and marketing and this sort of thing. And uh, and so there's a lot of similarities between Christian ideology and capitalist ideology. And again, you know, people like Andrew Carnegie were the first to admit it. You know, he is the one who comes up with the phrase the gospel of wealth in one of the speeches he delivered in the 19th century. I mean, that speaks to the kind of the, the, the Protestant work ethic equals the prosperity gospel. Precisely. And the idea is you work hard. There's a lot of self-abnegation that you then give to others. And of course, this is widely, of course, exploited by a lot of most obviously televangelists, you know, people like Oral Roberts, you know, in the in the 1950s who were screaming and yelling on television that they need more money. You have to send them more money so that they can buy another Rolex. But we can see it with a lot of television preachers today who clearly are in that line of the gospel of wealth 
and are clearly making a lot of money from their ministry. Give me just one or two quick takeaways and uh, maybe just sum up the overarching theme of the book. Is it accessible to a wide audience or do you have to be an economic major? Well, let, let no. I am I am an English professor. I am not a uh, an economic major. I th- I I do think that it's it, it the book was written for people who are interested in history and who are interested in stories, and that's why it's called the money plot. And I think anybody who's interested in hit in in history and stories is, is going to get something fun and interesting uh, out of out of this book. Um, and in terms of the takeaway, uh, one of the takeaways which I which uh, struck me immediately was when I, when I first started writing this book. Of course, you know. In the dark ages, 10 years ago, people would say, oh, you're writing about cryptocurrency. You're writing about Bitcoin. I was saying, no, I'm actually writing about early ostrich egg bead money. (laughs) And then eventually it occurred to me that, in fact, they weren't so dissimilar. And so, in fact, I do spend a bit of time talking about index funds and cryptocurrencies, but really talking about how they are, are like particularly crypto. We think it's something new. It is something extremely old. It is the same kind of encrypted symbolic code which we're using we're giving our energy to it we're mining it they say we're farming it and of course both mining and farms grain livestock metal these are all forms of primitive money crypto is not so different from anything tradi- from from traditional forms of money even pre-market money and craig wright who is the founder of uh, well according to himself he craig wright says that he took the pseudonym satoshi nakamoto and as people who are interested in Bitcoin know, another name for Bitcoin is a Satoshi. And he says that he delivered the quote-unquote genesis block of Bitcoin in 2009. The last block of Bitcoin will be released in 2140. But Craig Wright is an interesting figure, and I spend a bit of time talking about him. He is absolutely, absolutely obsessed with science fiction and with ancient Roman and Greek myth. He understands that that money is a myth that we all believe. And that is the ancient, archaic form of money. And that's what he replicated with a machine on computers. And that, and so people like my mother, who's 98, says, what is Bitcoin? And I tell her, it's an ostrich eggshell bead. You know, it's, <laughs> it's just one that's stuck in your computer. The book is The Money Plot, A History of Currency's Power to Enchant, Control, and Manipulate. It's by... Frederick Kaufman, he's been my guest. Fred, thank you for your time. It's been a great pleasure. John, always, always great to talk to you.